Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Oh my gosh! I feel the love. I'm so happy that you all were able to experience Don't Waste Your Pretty, the film. It premiered on TV One on Sunday night, and the reactions to the movie have been so warm and so positive and so overwhelming. I'm really, really happy um, that you loved it as much as I did. I, I've been a nervous wreck about this film for for the last couple weeks, I think starting February 1st. Just hoping that you all received it in the manner that I intended and that you loved it. And so far, so good. It seems that many of you did. So I'm super, super happy about that. I've gotten wonderful feedback about the film. And some of the best messages have been from from women who were like, thank you for for seeing me, for, for making me feel seen, for making me feel worthy in this film. I got this really great message in my DMs on Instagram. And the woman said that, you know, she's a dark-skinned woman. She's a plus-size woman. And she was like, I never see myself as the love interest. One of the leading characters, Jeanne, who was played extraordinarily by, by Deborah Joy Winans, she said that she really appreciated that, like, like, she was the one for the hero. He just loved her. So she was really appreciative of that depiction. I talked before on here about my ask for, for TV One, and I, I thought it was important to include a range of complexions and a range of sizes and a range of hair textures and really gorgeous men who aren't fuckboys. Everyone has issues that they have to deal with, but a search for love doesn't have to include struggle or, or disrespect or mistreatment. So I was really, really happy that that, that was received well. I was a little nervous, too, about the storyline with the lesbian couple. TV One posted a clip about Aisha and Amma, the married couple, um, having an argument. It was important for us to show black women experiencing all kinds of love. When people say, you know, hashtag black love and when they support and uplift black love, that includes lesbians. That includes the whole LGBTQIA community. Like everyone is worthy of love. And I think everyone is worthy of representation. So there they were in the film. So there were some negative reactions to that. Like there's, um, there's an idea that there's a, a gay agenda because more storylines these days, and still not enough, but more storylines these days are featuring LGBTQIA folk. And I don't see why not. Folks, folks exist. I mean, I don't know about your world, but they exist in mine. I didn't want to make the mistake that I think Sex in the City did where you create these characters and they exist in this all-white world in New York City, which is just impossible. And in the same vein, I don't think you can properly tell a story based in Atlanta without acknowledging the LGBT community. It just, it's unrealistic. Um, but our world includes a little bit of everybody. Gay, straight, lesbian, bi, people who are undefined, that, that's fine too. But all facets of the Kinsley scale. You know, obviously we didn't get around to representing everybody. In my comments on Instagram after the film, there was a guy that was like, you know, these men look good. He's like, I like the abs. I like the muscles and all that. But he was like, can we get some Husky Brothers? Husky Brothers need some love too. And I was like, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to add a Husky Brother. If there's um, 
not necessarily a spinoff. The conversation that, that we had early on with TV One was in a perfect world that if this film, you know, meets their their expectations, that maybe it could be a series. So I am not so patiently waiting for those numbers to come in and, and see how many of you watched and enjoyed the film. Some of you watched it the first time and then stayed on and then stayed for the encore, decided to watch it again back to back. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. That's how you know it's good. I really, really appreciate the love. I'm really glad that the, the film was received so well. I just, thank you. As Erica Badu likes to say, I'm an artist. I'm sensitive about my shit. I'm glad that so many of you enjoyed it. And I've already started thinking about storylines and directions that these characters can, can go in, which in writer terms means how to blow up their worlds and, and bring them back together. So I'm looking forward to um, the possibilities of what Don't Waste Your Pretty can be. There is lots going on this week. What I'm most excited about is Sister Soldier has a new book that drops today, March 2nd. I'm recording this Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. L.A. time. But Sister Soldier's new book, it is a sequel to The Coldest Winter Ever, and I am goo gobs excited about it. The Coldest Winter Ever was such an amazing book. I read it multiple times, and for 20 years, if not longer, I've been waiting for someone to like figure it out and make a film out of that book. I remember at one point, Jada Pinkett Smith, I think, owned the rights to the book. And there was some talk about like Willow playing Winter. But that could have just been internet rumor. I don't know how true that is. It's one of those books that I'm just like, I can't believe this was never made into a movie. Like y'all are sitting on a cash cow. I don't know why y'all don't want to make this money. Because every black woman I know and half the men would be in the theaters to watch the coldest winter ever. But but maybe if her new book, Life After Death, is the title, maybe if this new book does well, it'll revive interest in the coldest winter ever. So I hope it does. Sister Soldier put out a note, where else? But on her Instagram page, she says, this book ends my long moment of silence. Silence has been an opportunity for me to observe more, write more, work more, as well as protect myself, correct myself, prepare myself, and submit my prayers more sincerely. She says, a moment of silence brought forth the sequel to The Coldest Winter Ever. Every book that I write comes from my soul. I strive for excellence in the words I put forth. The fictional stories I tell are for your souls. I hope that you read each and every word of my new novel, Life After Death, without resistance. Let the storytelling happen to you. If you do it that way, I will be grateful to you. She also says that here on Instagram is where we can share our thoughts no matter what they are. That makes me wonder what's in this book. Now, I've read a couple of her other books. I read Midnight, which I think was her next book after The Coldest Winter Ever. And I was like, this is an interesting choice to go into Midnight Story, but okay. I love her writing. I didn't necessarily love the story, but she's one of those people I'll read anything that she writes. You know who actually reminds me of Sister Soldier is Tamika Mallory. Like, if you've ever seen Tamika speak when she really gets into it, Sister Soldier has a very similar demeanor, even cadence, to Tamika. I would be very surprised if she was not an influence, hell, even a friend, to Tamika Mallory. I'm going to ask her. We'll see if she'll come on the show. But I'm excited about this book. So if you, was, so if you are as excited about the sequel to The Coldest Winter Ever as I am, please pick up this book. I need to figure out a way to do a book club. Not that I really have a t- lot of time to read these days, but a book club is on like the list of things that I want to do. I've been talking about it forever. And it's like, at some point, you need to stop talking about it and actually do it, you know? 
that if anybody has ideas on how we can make a book club work well, I'd love to hear them. I don't know if we just do a Facebook group or it's a Zoom situation. I don't know. But we'll figure something out because that's something I really want to do. What else do we have? Oh, also this week we had D'Angelo and Friends for Versus, which there weren't many friends. Her and Redman and Meth came through. DJ Scratch, I guess he counts as a friend. He was there the whole time. But I thought the idea was that it was going to be D'Angelo versus a bunch of other people. I'd seen the list of friends. It was floating around the internet. I don't know if it was real just because of how the show played out. But Erica Badu was on the list. Raphael Sadiq was on the list. I want to say Maxwell. Lauren Hill. Which, when I saw that, I was like, y'all know Lauren ain't showing up for this. Not on time. But for who was there, it was really great. I just feel like the expectations were off because I was expecting like all these people and then they didn't show. And while I enjoyed the friends that did come, I really would have just shown up for D'Angelo. They could have said it was like a special versus D'Angelo versus D'Angelo. I would have been there eagerly, happily anticipating the whole thing. But D'Angelo, I want to say he sounded good, but then I also think that he wasn't singing most of the time. I think his voice came in here and there, but I think for most of it, he was lip syncing. And nonetheless, I enjoyed every bit of it. He had on this, um, I said it was a mink. (laughs) He had on this coat, but I saw folks talking about it online and they were like, why is D'Angelo dressed for the Night's Watch? I lost it. I lost it when I saw that. They were like, D'Angelo out here looking like Jon Snow. Y'all dead wrong for that. But the accuracy, the accuracy. But I was like, baby, I know you hot. I've been on stage at the Apollo. Them lights is hot. You sitting there in a full mink and a full outfit underneath with your do-rag and your hat. And I was like, sir, I know you hot. I know you hot. But D'Angelo can wear whatever D'Angelo wants to wear. He can also be whatever size he wants to be. D'Angelo can sing. Like, you know, we talk about Luther and we're like, big Luther, skinny Luther, whatever size Luther want to be, just sing. But that's how I feel about D'Angelo. I'm like, does your voice sound right? Sing what you sing. But her and D'Angelo, that was the cutest thing ever because she was absolutely fawning over him and and he was absolutely fawning over her like you couldn't believe she was there. And I was like, look at this love fest. And Red and Matt. Where has Redman been? I haven't seen Redman in a month of Sundays. I was happy to see him. He looked great. He looked really great. And the first thing I thought, I was like, he got to be vegan. Everyone I know or know of, and I look at them and think like, oh, like they're in their late 40s. They look fresh. They look good. They look like they haven't aged a day. In 20 years, they're all vegan or at least like plant-based diet. And I was like, damn, am I going to have to like give up all meat? I gave up chicken, beef, and pork over 20 years ago at this point. I was vegan in college, but I didn't do it right. I got like really skinny and had this like bobblehead effect. It didn't really work well for me. But I was like, yo, I'm going to have to give up like seafood and dairy and sugar if I want to, you know, maintain my beauty, look youthful despite not being young. They look great. Meth, always, meth, he looks better now than he did when he was younger. And I thought he was gorgeous then too. I was like, age has been kind to you. You have taken care of your vessel, sir. You have taken good care of your vessel. Amen. But they were good. D'Angelo was so happy to see Redman, who was the consummate professional. Like D'Angelo was sitting behind his piano when Redman and Meth came out. And I'm like, did you not know they were coming? He came from behind the piano and hopped all over Redman while he was rapping. And Redman did not miss a word. Redman was like, I have been off minding my business for the last 10 years. Ain't nobody seen me. I'm not going to come out and mess up my shit. 
I'm going to get all my royalties on the streams from this song. He just kept rapping. D'Angelo was so happy. He knocked his own hat off trying to hug on Redman. And Redman was very COVID sensitive. He took his face cover off to do his verse and put it right back on. He was like, I'm not playing with y'all. I ain't getting sick. I'm not getting sick for y'all. It was really, really good. I've been listening to like nonstop D'Angelo. It was really good. It was just short. I feel like D'Angelo gave us like good 90 minutes and was like, God bless and good night. He going home. I was like, oh, okay. I would also love to see what the numbers were for that. I didn't watch it on Instagram, so I couldn't see what the views were. I watched it on Apple, which I didn't prefer. Some people say the comments scrolling are annoying, but I love to see what people are saying. It makes me feel like, you know, we're having a communal thing as opposed to just like watching him perform, which was very intimate. It felt very um, super lounge at essence. So I did appreciate that. But the next verses, which is Ghostface versus Raekwon. I love Raekwon. I'm a huge Ghostface fan. I can still quote all of Supreme Clientele. I still work out to Supreme Clientele. The beats, trying to keep time with it, you'll work up a sweat. But I love Ghostface. So I'll definitely be tuned in for that one. On Instagram. There's more drama on The Bachelor. They got to get this franchise under control. Like, it is spinning out this season. I didn't watch last night's episode, which I think was, was it the tell-all? Is that what it's titled? He reunites with the women who he kicked out and then the women who left for a sit-down. And I'm sure it was dramatic and all. I've lost interest in actually watching the show now. I'm more interested in the off-camera drama that has now spilled out into the press. So a couple new revelations with The Bachelor. Rachel Lindsay, the first black bachelorette, maybe three years ago, four years ago at this point. But she did that interview with Mr. Chris, the host of the show, who is who stepped away or was put on punishment. He's not going to be participating in new episodes of the show. He did that horrible interview with Rachel Lindsay where he was basically like apologizing for blatant racism and downplaying it and talking about woke police. It was just a horrible interview, but we talked about that. But people are mad at Rachel and they're blaming her for Chris being either asked to step away or stepping away or whatever, for Chris not being there. And the woman who's at the center of this controversy also named Rachel, Rachel Kirkconnell, I call her racist Rachel, but racist Rachel, who was attending old plantation parties and, and liking posts with MAGA content, she's apologized publicly. And, and she's also allegedly, but like almost like 95% confirmed at this point, is the woman that Matt picks as his choice. So he proposes to her at the end of the series. I've also read that they've since broken up for what I think should be obvious reasons. But racist Rachel... After she does her apology, she says, these are just words. I'm going to do the work to educate myself. I don't want to be ignorant. I don't want to cause further harm. So I'm going to get my ish together. And please judge me by my actions going forward as I do the work to like make amends. Her version, I guess, of making amends and doing the work is she posted an Instagram story featuring a book called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man by Emmanuel Aku, who is, by the way, stepping in to replace Chris in the post-Bachelor show. So Matt proposes in a final episode, and then there's an after show. Chris usually hosts that show. Now it's going to be hosted by this black dude. We'll talk about that in a second. 
But she posts this book that's sitting next to a latte and she's got a fresh manicure. And Rachel Lindsay called the effort vapid. And Bachelor Nation, which is largely white people, came for Rachel's head and it got so bad that she had to disable her Instagram account. So the Bachelor producer stepped in to denounce the harassment of Rachel Lindsay. I told y'all this is a mess. So, so they had a statement, not on Instagram. They posted it to Twitter. I love social media. It says, quote, as executive producers of the Bachelor franchise, we would like to make it perfectly clear that any harassment directed toward Rachel Lindsay in the aftermath of her interview with Chris Harrison is completely inexcusable. Rachel has received an unimaginable amount of hate and has been subjected to severe online bullying, which more often than not has been rooted in racism. This is totally unacceptable. Rachel has been an incredible advocate for our cast, and we are grateful that she has worked tirelessly towards racial equity and inclusion. I hope Rachel's okay. Like, being in the middle of an Instagram storm, and I've not been at one nearly at Rachel's level, being in the middle of an Instagram storm or a social media storm is brutal brutal in a way that is hard to describe if it's never happened to you and has a good but I hope she's good and has a good support system I do appreciate that the producers have spoken out I wish they had spoken out about all this race shit years ago maybe they wouldn't be in the situation that they are in now so this new host of the bachelor after show his name is Emmanuel Aku. He is Nigerian-American. He is the host of the online series Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, which, according to his website, serves to spark meaningful dialogue around racial ignorance. He also has a book of the same title, which was selected as one of Oprah's favorite things for 2020. What else do we know about him? That show launched in June 2020, right around the beginning of, of the protest over George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And his show has more than 80 million views. How have I never heard of this? How have I never heard of this show or him? Huh. He's also a former NFL linebacker, an analyst for Fox Sports, and the co-host of Speak for Yourself. I don't know what that is. But he is stepping in to replace Chris in this after show, which is supposed to feature, obviously, Matt James, The Bachelor, Michelle Young, who I think is one of the final two that Matt was interested in. If you follow me on Instagram, I refer to her as hot air balloon because they had that amazing hot air balloon date and they couldn't keep their hands off each other. They had amazing chemistry. And then racist Rachel, who I believe is the person he picked. That's not confirmed, but, but she's who damn near every media outlet believes that he picked. As his new role as the host, at least for this episode of the show, he says, it's both an honor and a privilege to be hosting, blah, blah, blah. This is an incredibly pivotal episode, blah, blah, blah. He says he says he will sit down with Bachelor Matt James to discuss his season, his final decision, and where he is now, as well as cover the current events about the franchise. He also said this will be one of the most storied shows in the Bachelor franchise's history. Empathy is needed and change is coming. See y'all then. That empathy is needed sounds a little a little like what Chris said in that interview with Rachel when he was excusing things. I do know that Rachel Lindsay, black Rachel, thought he would be a fantastic choice to host in Chris's place. 
She says he's very outspoken about racial injustice for social justice and has pretty much been the person who said, I can have these uncomfortable conversations and people trust it. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I actually might tune in for this episode to see what he's talking about. If this sounds questionable, I'm going to try to be optimistic. I don't know, y'all. I don't know. I hope he got a good bag for it. Because they're not just bringing him in to host. They're bringing him in to clean up white people's shit and get the franchise back on track. That's a tall order for one black man to fill. So I hope he got the coins to clean up this mess. Speaking of messes, we've talked about New York Governor Andrew Cuomo many times in the last couple weeks. We are speaking about him again. He had a scandal with the nursing homes where he downplayed the number of deaths, which was bad. And he also had a sexual harassment scandal. We talked about this, I think, last episode, where a former staffer came forward. She wrote a a very long piece with receipts in an essay for Medium. Well, it seems that a second woman has come forward, and a third. The New York Times has a story about the second woman, Charlotte Bennett. She was an executive assistant and health policy advisor to the Cuomo administration, She left in November. She says the governor harassed her late last spring during the height of the state's fight against the coronavirus. Sir, don't tell me while you were out here calming the country and trying to save New York. In your downtime, you were plotting on a 25-year-old. According to the Times, who Miss Bennett spoke with in detail, she says on June 5th, She was alone with Mr. Cuomo in his state capitol office. She said the governor asked her numerous questions about her personal life. He said that he was open to relationships with women in their 20s. He said anybody above 22. Now, sir, you 63 whole years old. 22 is younger than your daughters, isn't it? Come on. The Times has details. Miss Bennett says the governor asked her questions about her personal life including whether she was romantically involved, whether she was monogamous in her relationships, and whether she had ever had sex with older men. Miss Bennett said that she felt deeply uncomfortable with Mr. Cuomo's comments and tried to shift the conversation into more neutral territory, something, quote, not about my sex life. She tried to switch it to intellectual theories about monogamy and power dynamics and even a tattoo she was considering. Mr. Cuomo suggested that perhaps she put the tattoo on her buttocks so people would not see it when she wore a dress. Now, here's where things get interesting. Look, to my 40 and up crowd, to my 60 and up crowd too, maybe preaching to the choir because I think a lot of y'all got good sense. Mr. Cuomo doesn't know this though. These millennials keep records of everything. They don't delete their texts or their emails. And they put everything in text and email. So after this incident happens, she tells her parents, she tells her friends, there are texts of these conversations detailing what happened from the time that they happened. She also went to HR. They had her transferred to another division. When it was time for the investigation, she was like, let it go. She was happy with where she was. She didn't have to interact with Cuomo anymore. And so she let it be. Oh, so ma'am has receipts. For everything that she's saying, the Times is like, we read the text. Everything that she's saying happened is detailed from the text messages at the time that it happened. 
Como gave a statement to the New York Times who notes that he did not deny that he asked Miss Bennett personal questions. He did say that she was a hardworking and valued member of his staff, that she has every right to speak out. He said that he tried to be supportive and helpful to her. He says the last thing I would ever have wanted was to make her feel any of the things that are being reported. Pomo told the Times that he believed he had been acting as a mentor to Miss Bennett and had never made advances toward her, nor did I ever intend to act in any way that was inappropriate. He says that he's requested an independent review of the matter and asked that New Yorkers await the findings before making any judgments. Sir, it's a little late. It's a little late. Because after this woman spoke out, another woman spoke out. Now, she wasn't a staffer. She met Cuomo at a wedding in 2019. She says that he grabbed and kissed her. Her story is in the New York Post, who has a picture of the governor and the third woman, Anna Rush. There's a picture of the incident that Anna alleges Cuomo is grabbing her face and she looks horrified. She also appears to be a young woman in her 20s. She says within moments of being introduced, the governor put his hand on the small of her lower back, which was exposed in an open back dress. She says, quote, I promptly removed his hand with my hand, which I would have thought was a clear enough indicator that I was not wanting him to touch me. But the governor didn't get the hint. Rush says that he noted she was, quote, aggressive and then placed his hands on her cheeks and asked if he could kiss her. She said, I turned my head away and didn't have words in that moment. She says she was so shocked she had to ask a friend whether the governor's lips had actually touched her face as she was pulling away. She was told that he kissed her cheek. Of the incident, she says, it's the act of impunity that strikes me. I didn't have a choice in the matter. I didn't have a choice in his physical dominance over me at that moment. And that's what infuriates me. She said after the encounter, her friend looked at her and said, are you okay? With such genuine concern in her face that I realized how obviously inappropriate it was. She said she also tried to find the governor later at the reception to give him a piece of her mind, but she couldn't track him down. She said, I felt so uncomfortable and embarrassed when really he is the one who should have been embarrassed. Yeah, he should be. You've listened to this podcast, or I hope you have, for the last few months. Like, I was fawning over Andrew Cuomo. And come to find out, the man is just a whole creep. A dirty old man creep. For shit like this, I do not miss being in my 20s. Like, stuff that I sort of think back on now about some of the ways that that men... 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 sometimes years older than me. Like I've told the story. I don't know if I said it on here, but I told the story on Facebook about how a very well-known rights, civil rights leader groped my breast when I was at a radio station for an interview. And another very well-known civil rights leader was standing right there in front of him and said nothing. The producer of the radio station apologized to me afterward just for clarity. Like he did it and I removed his hand and yanked it down, but it was two other men standing there. And they both acted like they didn't see what just happened. Like, it was obvious. His groping and my yanking his hand. But nobody said shit. But sir was a good late 60s, early 70s. Easy. I sat in the green room with my mother for CNN once. And his wife and son came in. But his, and his wife spoke so wonderfully and passionately about her husband. And I was like, lady, I know you know you married to a whole hoe. Because when I started telling people the story and I was like, XYZ, grab my boob, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's a fucking creep. And people were like, oh, girl, that's just how he is. 
Every woman who works in like politics, civil rights adjacent, everybody got a story about him. A couple people have spoken out about it publicly. There was a couple articles, maybe like two or three years ago, of women saying that he'd done about the same thing. And if you went into the comments of those articles, there were a bunch of people being like, yeah, that's just how he is. Everybody knows he nasty. And Cuomo has a problem, a personal problem, obviously. And look, these old ass men thinking these young girls want them, sir, they want your money. 23-year-old women are not attracted to 63-year-old men old enough to be their dad. They like the power. They like the lifestyle. They like the finances. They like the gifts. But you? At 23, you can go find a man in his 30s that has money, power, and abs. If you're cute, if you're not so cute in your 20s and you want an older man who provides lifestyle, you're going to have to go date a man in your 60s. These women are cute. These women are cute. Their pictures, they're cute. They ain't got to date no old-ass man to access power, money, and lifestyle if that's what they want. Creepy ass old man. That's disgusting. And now you got the picture plastered on the front of the post. These millennials, y'all, they take pictures of everything. This is the third woman has come forward. They all got receipts. And this photo, please look up this photo that's on the cover of the New York Post. He's at least a foot and change taller than this woman. He's grabbing her face, which is clearly aggressive in the photo. And she's cringing. Like her face is all twisted up. She looks disgusted. And poor Chris Cuomo. He's got an hour every night on CNN where he's got to talk about the news. And he finally had to address his brother because it's the cover of the New York Post. This was last night. Chris told viewers, obviously, I am aware of what's going on with my brother. (laughs) And obviously, I cannot cover it because he is my brother. Now, of course, CNN has to cover it. They have covered it extensively and they will continue to do so. He added, I have always cared very deeply about these issues And profoundly so. Then he said, there's a lot of news going on that matters also. So let's get after that. Yikes. Family, man. Put you in the damnedest situations. Feel bad for Chris. I do. And Cuomo. I can't believe he did this shit. I feel like that Tyra meme. And she's like, we were rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. He fucked that up. Last but certainly not least, the Golden Globes were Sunday night. I did not watch it for what should be obvious reasons. The awards show was on at the same time as Don't Waste Your Pretty. But I was able to catch up on some things that I missed. We've talked about the Golden Globes before when the nominations came in. There were a lot of really good films and shows that weren't even mentioned, which surprised a lot of people. So on that list... As I May Destroy You, which was really, really good. The Five Bloods, Sylvie's Love, Insecure, The Shy, Pose, Queen Sugar, and Malcolm and Marie. I think it's also worth noting that the Hollywood Foreign Press, according to what I'm reading, has not had a black member in 20 years. Is that accurate? In around 20 years. So that may explain why some black folks' favorites didn't make the cut. Chadwick Boseman, he did win an award. He won Best Actor for his role, his final role in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which, which he totally deserved that. That wasn't a pity award because of his passing. He acted his ass off in that role. His widow gave a speech. It was heartbreaking. Her voice cracked and she cried all the way through it. She got through it, though. She got through it. She said, you know, if Chadwick were here, he had, he would say something 
witty and funny and graceful and I'm not him and I don't have those words. And I was like, honey, you're doing good. You're doing good. But she thanked all of the actors and the producers and and the team at the network and, and all, all the right people. She did really good. Watching her and I was thinking that on the list of things that people always talk about when choosing a spouse, you know, we talk about, people talk about things like um, their credit score or their finances. And not to say that these things aren't important, but one thing that people rarely mention is, is your spouse as the person who, if you have children, will create your legacy. And if you die first, is left to preserve your legacy. I often think about three women who've done this really, really well, like JFK and, and the mystique of Camelot. That's solely because of an interview Jackie Kennedy gave about a week after he died. I want to say it was to Life magazine. Coretta Scott King. Not that her husband wasn't considered a great man in life, but she's made sure to keep his name alive. The Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta, it's Coretta Scott King. His widow did that. She preserved his legacy. Vanessa Bryant, she got up at the funeral for Kobe and Gigi, and she made sure that the world knew, because the world was watching, but she made sure that we all remembered Kobe as a loving and attentive husband and a wonderful father. There are other people that have passed, and people like to bring up dead folk stuff since they're not here to respond anymore. But she made sure that the world remembered her husband in the way that she wanted him to be remembered. It's important. Chadwick's wife is doing the same thing. She is elegant, and she is graceful. She's also beautiful. That gown was amazing. I felt so bad looking at her gown while she was struggling to get through words. That gown was amazing. But she's graceful, and she's elegant, and she's beautiful, and she's holding his legacy. It's important. Andra Day. Andra Day. Is it Andra Andra? I watched the Oprah interview. Oprah mispronounced it, and she was corrected, but I can't remember the way she was corrected. Andra Andra. Shit. But she won for Best Actress for the United States versus Billie Holiday. So I watched that film on Friday night. I totally didn't realize I had Hulu. I was going to get Hulu again. And then I went on and it took me right in. And I was like, damn it, I've been paying for Hulu all these months and didn't know it. Man. But I watched the film. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was beautifully shot. She did an amazing job as Billie Holiday. Like, I'm obsessed with Billie Holiday. I can sing almost every song. Like, I love Billie Holiday. I'm also obsessed with Lady Sings the Blues. I have the original poster from 1972 hanging on my wall. Like, I love Billie Holiday. I read that Diana Ross got a Golden Globe for her portrayal of Billie Holiday and Lady Sings the Blues. I watched it. It's very Lee Daniels. It's a little over the top in some places. It's a little um, trauma porn in some places. But that's Lee Daniels. That's what he likes to do. Like, I knew that going in, just how, like, like Spike Lee is going to hit you with message after message after message in every scene. I know when I watch a Lee Daniels film what I'm going to get. So I went in with those expectations. Andra acted her ass off. Javante Rose, he acted his ass off. He looked good as fuck. Oh, my God, that's a beautiful man. Jesus. And although I think I'm obsessed with Billie Holiday, I did not know the story of the FBI agent. I'd never heard that story before. And like, I read her autobiography, which is largely a work of fiction, but okay. I read books about her, but I never heard about the FBI agent that went after her. I knew there was a huge issue with her performing Strange Fruit. I didn't know the extent of it. I didn't know it was anything like what was depicted in the film. 
And Lady Sings the Blues doesn't touch it. Lady Sings the Blues ends with her performing at Carnegie Hall. It's, it's much more a biopic of Holiday's life than this current film. The costumes were beautiful. The hair was amazing. Andrew's hair especially. But even Miss Lawrence in that half wig. I mean, he looked terrible with it. That George Jefferson situation. Or what Jamie Foxx had in um, Ali. As far as, I mean, to create character, it was, it was good hair for that purpose. But a lot of people didn't like it. They were like, it's very beautiful, but it was a terrible, disjointed story. Susan Lori Parks did the script, and people usually love her work. But they, they have been ripping this one. I didn't think it was bad. I also started packing merch during the second half of the film. So maybe that does say something about the film. Because the first hour, I was just laying there watching it, and then I got up and was like, okay, I need to like do some work. So maybe that does say something about the film. I thought I liked the part that I saw, but I did stop giving it my full attention. So maybe that does mean something. But I'm happy for Andrew Day. I think she's a phenomenal singer. And is there a soundtrack to this with Andrew Day singing Billie Holiday? Because like the 1972 movie, Diana Ross had a whole album during covers of Billie Holiday music. But that's how like backdoor um, my interest in, in Billie Holiday began was because of the film and then the soundtrack. And then I was like, I wonder what the original songs sound like. And then I became obsessed. And that's when I was right out of college, I think. But I hope Andrew Day has her own soundtrack for this music because she was amazing. She was really, really amazing. I'm very happy for her. Also, pure coincidence, I guess, Lady Sings the Blues was also Diana Ross's first role. And she got the Best Actress Golden Globe for it. And now Andrew Day, same situation. Maybe that's the thing. People want to get Golden Globes. They got to play Billie Holiday. There's this really cute video circulating on the internet of Andra Day um, being surprised by Regina King. Andra's sitting on the couch talking to camera, and then Regina King comes in behind her, and, and Andra sees her in the video and gets up and runs around the couch. And Regina King is just going full ham-ass crazy with excitement for Andra. It's so, so cute. Remember Taraji P. Henson? She was at an award show. I can't remember who won. But Taraji was in the audience yelling like she'd won. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. I love this magic. Regina King did all that and then took it up a notch. Like she was, she went crazy. It was such a cute moment. It was such a cute black girl moment. Like I watched it over and over and I was like, oh my God, I love her. I love them both. Oh my God, I love them. It's so cute. There were some other winners. John Boyega won for Best Performance by an Actor in a Television Supporting Role. Remember Small Acts? Now, you know I talked about Small Acts like non-stop. I usually talk about the second film in the series. But John Boyega did his thing. He plays a black man who integrates his local police force. And it's based on a true story. And it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. Like his, um, he gets vilified by the community for being a cop. And then he's not accepted by his fellow officers for being black and for being good. I want to say he was a, a chemist, physicist, scientist of some sort. And he quit that job because he really wanted to be a police officer because he wanted to make a difference. And he thought that a black person in the force could help white officers have more empathy toward the black community or the black people they were policing in that community. So um, much deserved win for him. And then I'm forgetting someone. Oh, Blanket. <laughs> I gotta stop calling him that. And then Daniel Kaluuya 
I think I'm pronouncing it right this time. He won for Best Supporting Actor for his role in Judas and the Black Messiah. And some people were like, wait, how is he winning Best Supporting? The film went about him. The film was about Lakeith Stanfield's character, Judas. So that's why Daniel won Supporting and not Best Actor. I heard he gave a, a speech that was, that was muted. Somebody messed up his mic. Yikes. Yikes. There was about 20 seconds of dead air, but they did give him a chance to give his full speech. And he took a moment to quote Nipsey Hussle. He said of his performance, we're here to give until we're empty. And I gave everything. I like him. I like him lots. Can't wait to see what his next role is. So that is the podcast for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't had a chance to get your Don't Waste Your Pretty merchandise, there is some available on the sites, especially for the large to 4X sizes. So if you need a roomier shirt or you got a good rack that needs a little more space, there are sweatshirts available on the site, along with mugs and signed copies of the book. And just a note about the book, because I'm getting a lot of emails about it. They are a pre-order item. They are personalized and they are hand signed and they do take a while to get out. So thank you so much for your patience as I ship them. I tend to sign them in batches of 100 so that I don't mess up my wrist. When I was selling books over the summer and I was signing like a thousand every week, didn't do so well for my hands. So I have to space it out in order to get them signed. So thank you for your patience while I get those second edition copies out to you. They are available on the website as well. DemetriaLLucas.com if you haven't picked up your merch yet. I feel like there's something else I was supposed to be telling you and I don't remember what it is. Oh well, we'll talk about it on Friday. Okay, bye.